Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 274 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to start this show with a quote from the late and great communicator Steve Jobs. Simple can be harder than complex. You have to work hard to get your thinking clean to make it simple. But it's worth it in the end. Because once you get there, you can move mountains. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking. And because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, how are you? I hope you're well. hope life's treating you good and your speaking is moving forward. It's lovely to be back with you. Although, I tell you what, this week, I think it was like Tuesday, this week I nearly fell over in shock. I'll tell you for why. Because someone in a house nearby has already put a Christmas tree up. What? That I'm no Grinch, but surely that's a bit premature. Before the 10th of November? Blimey, I mean, if it keeps going at this rate, people will be wearing baubles with their bikinis. Although I suppose they do that already in Australia. Anyway, although some people are wishing the year away, there is still a good chunk of it left, enough for you to up-level your speaking. And if that is something on your radar, well, you're going to love this episode, but besides that, if you've been booked for a talk and you don't know how to start putting it together, or you want to have a great talk ready to start earning another income from speaking next year, then do check out the masterclass I'm running this month. In that class, I'll be walking you through step by step the talk blueprint that I created that will get you a talk that you're unreasonably excited to share, your audience loves and wins you clients in a way that no one feels pitched to. Just this week, another one of my clients converted 40% of her audience the first time out with a talk created using this structure. So come along to the masterclass. It's hands-on. We're rolling up our sleeves and we actually start building your talk in the session. And that's why places are limited because I'm going to be working with you, giving you coaching and feedback in that uh, in that session. So if you want to join us, head over to saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass and you can find out more and book your place right there. But now we're going to talk about today's show. And have I got a treat for you, a real master of communication. Now, it's often said that the real experts are the ones that can make the complex easy to understand. And Roz Atkins is an expert on making things easy to understand. So I guess that would make him the expert's expert. As a journalist, 
and a BBC News analysis editor, Ros Atkins has presented and reported on the biggest stories around the world for 20 years. He's also the creator of the critically acclaimed Ros Atkins On video series, which has become a phenomenon, garnering millions of views all over the place. And he's renowned for his ability to explain complex stories in a clear, concise and consumable way. And that's led him to being dubbed, uh, certainly in the UK anyway, the nation's explainer in chief. On this show, he's going to be sharing his stories from the front lines of news reporting, the mistakes he made and how he discovered the secret to the art of explanation. You'll also get some fantastic tips that will improve your communication generally and will absolutely power up your speaking content and delivery. Without further ado, let's head over to that interview right now. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Ros Atkins. Sarah, thanks very much for having me. Oh, cool. I'm very excited. I've been reading your new book, which we're going to be talking about. Thank you. And I'm enjoying it. There's a lot of synergy, actually, with what we talk about on the Speaking Club, which is which is absolutely fabulous. So um, can you tell me, what was the trigger for you writing The Art of Explanation? Well, I could give you two answers to that, and perhaps both are worth sharing. The The first answer is actually I was carrying on as a BBC journalist and presenter about two and a half years ago, and out of the blue, I got an email from someone senior at a publisher saying, would you like to have a chat? So I thought, well, why not? That's a flattering email to get. And I mentioned it to one of the few friends I've got who've ever written a book and I said to her what do you think I should do and she said the first thing you should do is get an agent a literary agent because you shouldn't go along to that meeting without um, someone who knows the industry so to cut a long story short I managed to find a brilliant agent called Will Francis and Will and I talked before the meeting and he said well what do you think this meeting is I said I've got no idea to be honest just, this, this person just asked for a chat and I said well I should go in with an idea shouldn't I and Will said well have you got any and I said well the only idea I've got a couple, but I think my main idea is that I use this system to approach explanation and communication in lots of different areas of my life. And perhaps that's of interest. So Will said, yeah, I think that could that could work. So I spent a little while working that idea up in case it was required in the meeting. And we turned up. It was on Zoom, actually. So we turned up virtually and it was a very amicable meeting. And this this person we were meeting was very nice. And he said, I've got an idea for, for a book that we think you might be able to write. Uh-huh. And he explained his idea. It was a great idea, but I really wasn't sure if I was the person to write it. I was flattered to be asked, but I wasn't convinced I was the person to write it. And I said, well, but I've also got an idea. And I outlined my idea. And he was very nice about it. And he wasn't sure it was right for him. And so at the end of this uh, very amicable and and flattering meeting, um, I wasn't sure about the idea being offered to me and uh, the publisher wasn't sure about the idea that that I was offering and and we left it there. But after that process, I had a brilliant literary agent that I hadn't had before and I'd kind of engaged with the, the, the process of, well, could this be a book? And so that had got my my cognitive wheels turning a little bit and I started to engage in the idea a bit more and around the same time our explainer videos were doing reasonably well and more and more people both in a work context but also I'd just be talking to people 
would say, how do you make them? People were quite interested in how we went about explaining complex issues and stories in the news uh, in quite a, in a brief and hopefully consumable but comprehensive way. And people seemed interested when I started to explain the processes I use, which made me think perhaps there's a market for a book around this. And so Will, my literary agent, said, well, I think the next thing you need to do is see if you can write something. So I wrote a proposal. We worked on it together. And and um, to my delight, uh, Wildfire, which is part of Headline, agreed to, to work with me on the book. And, and here we are. So I've been thinking about explanation and communication for a very long time, as you can tell if you've read the book. Mm. But it was really a slightly unlikely prompt that came from this very... Um, kind person in the publishing industry who kind of got the got me to engage in the idea in a in a slightly more active way brilliant excellent I love that so it's serendipitous even though it didn't quite line up in that first meeting it's uh, it was it got the the yes, and, I, and I think it's always a it was a good reminder actually that sometimes you can have good meetings or explore ideas with people and you can explain the idea perfectly well and they can have perfectly good reasons to not want to do it like it's possible for a discussion like that not to end up with the outcome you were hoping for but for that to be okay that you've done your best and that the people who don't want to do it they've got good reasons too and you know that was it was fine cool and you mentioned the explainer videos can you just give a bit of context around those for the people that might not have come across them yet what are they and why were they of such interest to people so we started working on these explainer videos as a new format in 2019 and right at the end of 2019. And initially they were an experiment within a live TV program, a program called Outside Source that I presented for most of the last 10 years, where we wanted to see whether we could package up all of the most relevant information. So the most relevant up-to-date reporting, any context you might need, any historical context you might need, any data, any fact-checking, any uh, graphs, any maps, any social media, any type of content that might be relevant to you understanding this story. I wanted to see if I could distill that down into, we didn't put a time limit on it, but I was thinking three to five minutes, and then take it out of the live program and put it online and say to people, look, if you're aware of this story, but you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by the amount of information or feeling confused about aspects of it, give us five minutes. And in return, we hope that we'll, we'll make you feel a lot better informed. And we first did it on the bushfires in Australia in 2019, early 2020, and they had a much bigger take up. There was a much greater level of interest in Australia to those videos than we anticipated. And that made me think, OK, I think not just on this story, but more generally, there could be uh, an interest in this. And we started taking on lots of other subjects and they grew and grew and grew and um some of them got watched an awful lot, some of them less so, but generally they were becoming more and more popular. And I think, I hope that they cater for a desire from all of us to get some clarity on the issues and stories in the news that we care about. And that sometimes that clarity can be elusive simply because of the volume of information coming at us. It can be hard, it can be time consuming, frankly, to sift through it all. And mm. so I guess the offer from me and my brilliant colleagues and the BBC more generally with this product is we'll do that work for you. We'll yeah. we'll spend the time sifting all of this and distilling it down and then hopefully delivering it in a way. And this is the, the two things we're aiming for that is both helpful and informative, 
but also you you like watching it there's a yeah. there's a certain style to it there's a certain um tone to it that you also uh enjoy watching too and if you can get those two things right because i always think explanation is a mixture of style and substance mm-hmm. um hopefully people will give you four or five minutes of their time absolutely yeah and i know that in the engagement part of the in, sort of recipe if you like uh is 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 a big thing for you and i'm absolutely agree you know there's there's two sides it's what you say and how you say it and they've got they've got to be you know on point really excellent well one of the things that you mention in the book as a principle of good explanation is complexity and we've just touched on that and I love there's a there's a sort of little thing that you talk about in the book where you, you you talk about the point that you know when when one is in conversation with another person they're trying to explain something complex and they sort of get to this point where they're like oh I don't think I can do this <laughs> and they sort of they, right. you know back off um it, can you share more about why we shouldn't give up on complexity why it's necessary and what to do instead in terms of that backing off I am an enthusiast of of engaging with complexity and there's a number of reasons why the first would be if there are complexities within a subject that you're explaining that bluntly you either don't explain or you can't explain in a in a consumable way, you'll know it. You'll be aware of it. So first and foremost, you won't be able to communicate effectively on that particular aspect of the subject you're talking about. So that is obviously not a good thing. There's a second thing which I really feel when I'm doing live TV broadcasts, which are almost always without notes and without auto cue if you're on location and uh, on a rolling story is that you'll be aware in the back of your mind that there's a part of the subject that you're not as confident on as the rest of it. And you'll be aware that if that subject comes up, you're going to have to try and work that through while you're live on the TV and you don't and you don't want to be in that situation. So it can affect your your confidence more broadly. There's a third aspect, which is if you've not understood a complexity of a subject, you can't judge whether to include it or not. And effective communication is a lot about deciding what stays in and what what doesn't. But unless you've understood that aspect of it, you, you're not going to be able to make an informed decision. And so sometimes I or the producers I work with will spend some time on an aspect of an issue we're making a video on. And after doing that, we'll conclude, no, we don't need to include it. But that's a, a conclusion based on confidence and knowledge so that we we've, we've worked it through. And then the final thing is, if you're aware of complexities in a subject, so will the people that you're talking to be. And there's nothing more infuriating, and you'll know this feeling, when you're being spoken to, whether it's in the news or reading an article or a training course or a presentation or 101 other examples, where you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but what about what about that? You aren't engaged. What about that aspect of it, that complicated aspect that I'm confused about? The person you're hearing from, you want them to help you with that. So if the person you're hearing from either can't explain it well or is avoiding it, neither of those things are going to make you inclined uh, to be impressed by by that person who's communicating with you. So for all of those reasons, I hunt down the complexities of the story. And the way I would describe it is I'm highly sensitized to what I don't understand and I actively go towards it. So rather than running away from it, I'm on the lookout for what I don't understand. And the reason I am roots to my experiences, and I've just alluded to this, of being live on the radio and the television for hours and hours on stories that are often very complicated and multifaceted. 
And I don't want that feeling of being live in front of an awful lot of people and knowing if an aspect of a story comes up, I'm not going to be comfortable. So one of the stories I tell in the in the book is about covering the Greek debt crisis in 2015, which was a fiendishly complicated story. And each morning, I think I was there for nine, 10 days, and I was doing hours and hours on the TV. Each morning, I would sit down and think, right, what are the bits of this story that I'm worried might come up? I would kind of actively look for them. And then once I'd made that list, I would address them so that I was rather than not being confident about them, I would sometimes actively seek to talk about them because I'd worked through how to do it. All of which is quite a long way of saying, spot your discomfort with complexities and then spend the time working them through. And my final tip on this, which I do, and my poor colleagues will, will confirm this, when you think you've worked out how to explain a complexity in a consumable way, test it out. Yeah. Test it out on other people. Don't test it out when it really matters, when you're live on the TV or giving a speech or giving a training course. Test it out in advance because sometimes you'll have cracked it, sometimes you won't. And there's this to and fro I'll often do with colleagues on big stories where I'll say, I think I'm going to talk about this aspect of the story this way and I'll try it and I'll go, is that okay? And they'll go, almost, but actually you need a bit less of this and you need to emphasize that. I go, okay, let me try it again. I'll repeat it back to them. Did I get it this time? Okay, great, I did, I'll use that. And so that to and fro with someone who either knows the subject or sometimes it can help if they don't know the subject is a very good way of road testing what you're about to do before you actually do it when it counts. Absolutely, yeah. Hope's not really a great strategy. Just like, don't ask no. me that question. Please don't ask me that question. Exactly. Because you're all like disconnected from the moment because you're focusing probably more on what you don't know than what you do know. So that's that's brilliant. I guess the question is, as well, did you get caught out? Were you ever on the back foot and that's what triggered this focus on it? Or have you just been mindful of it from the start of your career? I'm sure there have been times when I've been caught out. I don't think you can, I think any of my BBC colleagues who are reporters, correspondents, presenters, we're just broadcasting for too many hours across too many subjects for there never to be moments where we're we're asked about subjects we don't have a huge amount of information on. Um, my my first plan on that is obviously to try and second guess where I may be short on understanding and fix it, which is what we've just been discussing. But of course, you can't predict every last thing that will come up if you're covering a big Brexit summit, and I did lots of those, or if you're covering a big political drama, like when Boris Johnson was in trouble last year, or if you're doing the Greek debt crisis, or lots of other examples, election campaigns, I've done lots of those. Um, you can't cover off every base, it's simply not possible. And so it's also important to think about, well, what phrases will you use to describe the fact that you can't offer too much information <laughs> on this? And again, that can feel like a, an intimidating moment coming your way, but actually, it's not intimidating if you've already thought about what, what I'm going to do if I'm asked a question that I can't answer. And I talk about that in the book. There are lots of phrases. You know, the, the best strategy I have, you'll see journalists doing this a lot on breaking stories. You say what you know and what you don't know. You'll say, well, at the moment, there's only two things that we can say for sure. There's this and that. What we don't know, but we're trying to find out is A, B, C and D. So you acknowledge that there is a limit to your understanding. Uh, another thing you can do is say, well, to be honest, we've only got so much information on this. I can tell you A and tell you B. Another important aspect of this is, and then you shift onto something where you have more detail to share. And 
the more you practice using these phrases, which both acknowledge the limits of your knowledge on that subject and also shift you into areas where you've got more to say, the more being in those moments isn't intimidating because you know you have the turns of phrase to be able to manage that moment. And there would definitely have been moments early on in my career where that felt pretty uncomfortable, where I didn't have the phrases, but I realized that however hard I worked, I was never going to be able to cover off every possible question. So I also started spotting how much more experienced colleagues dealt with those moments. And as you'll have noticed in the book, I'm constantly trying to learn from people I see mm -hmm. things doing better than me. And I would jot down the phrases they use. And I would say, OK, I'm going to try using that phrase next time in that moment. Um, or I'd even try using them before I was in that moment. I'd practice at home or practice in a studio in advance. And the more you become comfortable with these uh, phrases and uh, then the more you can use them when the pressure's on. Perfect. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Great. And, and, and I love one of the things that came across in the book uh, is sort of interspersed with the journalistic and presenting career are um, anecdotes from and sources from your love of music. Uh, so you have a background as a DJ. And I just wondered if you could share some of the lessons that you learned from music uh, you listen to and your own DJing experience that make the difference to us being be better listeners and being better understood, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can I can try and do that. So I think there's a few lessons I've taken from my interest in music. In the case of DJing, the big lesson is you can have 10 brilliant tracks but if you don't order those tracks well, it may they may not work in, in, in total. You could also have those 10 tracks and have them in a great order for one crowd on a Friday night, but in a different venue with a different crowd on a Saturday night, it might not work. So the lesson there from DJing is it's not just about having the right raw materials, though the right raw materials matter. Every time you communicate, whether it's musically as a DJ or in, uh, spoken in lots of different situations, uh, you need to think about, we don't communicate in a vacuum. We mm -hmm. communicate to specific people in a specific moment. And the more that you can take that into account, the more likely you are to be successful. So the DJ who just rocks up and plays the same set regardless of where they are, I mean, maybe they're so good that it's going to work every time. But in my experience, you need to stop and think about who's the crowd, how long am I DJing for, what's the uh, what's the size of the venue, what's the venue known for. All of these things should affect the the choice of tracks that you make. Um, the other couple of examples I think I mentioned. Well, there's there's a great YouTube video of uh, sadly no longer with us, uh, a French music producer called Felix Czar, who who produced the French band Phoenix's big album which start the one which starts with listomania and he's talking about how he does the edit the final mix of the whole album right at the end when everything else has been done and he talks about needing cold blood and what he means is these are the moments where you have to take really tough decisions sometimes tough decisions that maybe go against what you thought you were going to do and that reminded me of how you approach editing in a journalistic setting you have to be willing to cut whole sections you've spent time on. You have to be willing to drop, if you're a program editor, drop stories that someone's worked on all day. You have to keep in mind the only thing that matters is what the audience gets and whether that's right for them. And everything else has to be secondary. So uh, I like the way he phrased that. And then the third one I would mention is, I'm a big fan of Steely Dan, a band who were particularly big in the 70s. And 
they were famous for kind of fusing popular music and jazz and they worked to an incredibly high standard of musicianship and they were also famous there were only two of them who were in the band but then they used lots of session musicians the best session musicians in the states they were these guys were incredible and they would uh, go through lots and lots of session musicians when making albums and there's a documentary about the making of their best-selling album Asia and one of the session guitarists talks about how they would be drilled and drilled and drilled on these tunes and then after that the two guys in Steely Dan would say okay now we're going to relax and play it and I absolutely love that, that they put all the effort into making sure that technically it was perfect, the production was perfect, the composition was perfect, everything was as tight as you like. But the, the guy who's being interviewed has this lovely phrase, which is, but of course it has to be a hit. And his point is that in the end, they were trying to make a three, four minute, often sometimes a bit longer piece of music that might be played on the radio and sell lots, which, which it did in the case of Steely Dan. And I that resonated so much with me that we can all put in the preparation and we should into how we communicate both the content and the style and everything within that. But also you need to make it something that's easy to consume, sometimes fun, enjoyable to consume. And that that moment of that Steely Dan documentary really explained to me something that I was reaching for in my TV presenting, but hadn't quite worked out how to explain. And I think of it as being tight and loose. The first part of the process is getting everything lined up. And then the second part is just easing into it a little bit. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. It's something that, so I, my background, uh, stand-up comedy was for a long yes. time. And and people think stand-up comedy is off the cuff. It's not, it's scripting. <laughs> Comics spend ages and ages and ages scripting, but you've got to let go of the script. And the same is true for what you do and for speaking. You've just got to get to the point where you've done the prep and you have to trust and let go so that it comes across naturally and authentically. Your personality comes through and all that good stuff. So really, really important. And I, and I guess, I mean, you'll be the expert on this, but I would imagine that with stand-up comedy, you also allow yourself to leave the script and come back to it. Yeah, So absolutely. you are you're confident... Yeah moving off the path because you know where the path is when you need to come back onto yeah, it exactly you have a you know i mean in the speaking you know we, we both have processes but there's a, there's a, like a high level structure i know i'm what i'm doing i maybe have a couple of bullet points often you'll see comics particularly have like stuff on the back of their hand right. which will just be and you'll see them looking and people think they're looking at the time but it's they're looking at the especially if it's a new set but that's the thing, you know, that's what makes things great is when people feel that it is natural and it's authentic and you're with them right. rather than remembering something. And so that's yeah. a really, really important. So point. I used I to, because when I was uh, doing lots of TV presenting, I had a bit of a reputation for going off script a little bit during <laughs> programs. And this quite reasonably would sometimes throw people in the gallery because they were expecting the next thing to come and I wasn't saying the next thing and it was very much my problem not theirs I hasten to add but I often used to say to uh, the auto cue operator I'm afraid I'm prone to doing this if I leave the script please just stop wherever we are yeah. and I, I promise I'll come I'll drop back onto it and the auto cue operators were brilliant at that and so when they saw me and they could just tell hold on he's not reading what the words say on the auto cue because we talked about that before, they would know to just pause and then they would be brilliant at spotting when I was dropping back onto it. And when we were working in tandem really effectively, I don't think the viewer would have known when I was on script, when I'd moved off the auto cue and when I dropped back on. And 
that comes from a, a couple of things, obviously having brilliant people in the gallery, but I think it also comes from making sure that your scripts or whatever you've prepared are entirely authentic. So there is no difference in tone and language between when you're on script and when you're off script. And I think I put in the book that I have a kind of zero tolerance rule, which is if something isn't how I would speak in a script, it always changes, never any compromise on that. Because if you can do that, it's possible to be both controlled, but also to speak as, as you would like. Yeah, I think that's really, that's a really good point. And I think that's the other thing that people sometimes get a little bit wrong when they are creating a script for the spoke for, for speaking, because something written down has to be practiced aloud so that because there's a different way and I think you point that out in the book there's a different way that people read as to when they listen and you've yeah. got to make sure that you like you say put the prep prep in to give yourself the time to make that switch from the, the written word to the spoken word. right and the thing I find which is a nice moment when it happens is let's imagine I'm talking about a subject you know, a, a section of a talk I'm giving. And within this section, I want to make five points and I've got them summarized as bullet points. I'll practice talking through them, looking at the bullet points several times, and then I'll turn the page over and I'll go, okay, can I go through this without, without notes? And then assuming that I can, I'll do that a few more times. And something lovely happens, I'm sure you're familiar with this. You start every, with each time you do it, you become more efficient and precise with how you deliver it because you're more confident of it. So you don't pad your sentences because you don't feel a need to, because often mm -hmm. we add words in to buy ourselves time because we're feeling our way. And you do this again and again before you know it, by the fourth or fifth time, you are moving through these five things with a, a remarkable amount of precision given that you're doing it off the top of your head. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I find most potent is when you notice that you start using the same phrases to describe the information or to link the information. So you haven't learned to script because that would be, that would feel odd. Yeah. But the way that you describe both the information and the way the information links together becomes incredibly familiar. And so you get this lovely mix of it being off the cuff and it not being entirely scripted, but there being an underlying precision to how you're speaking. And um, I should emphasize the only way I get to that point is by practicing it quite a lot before I do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you definitely can't really wing it in your job. <laughs> now, um, you talked about a presenter called Owen Bennett Jones in the book and a lesson that you learned from him. Can you share, and I'm using this word deliberately, the so what of that? So this is a section of the book where I'm emphasizing the importance of context. And the reason I'm so focused on context is that nothing matters in a vacuum, an event, an issue, a story, whatever it may be, matters in the context of other things in our lives, of, in the context of other things in our world. And without context, it's very hard for people to care as much about whatever you're saying as they would do if they knew all the context. Now, the example of Owen Bennett-Jones is going back a few years ago, and it's uh, he was talking about an assassination of a politician in Pakistan. And it was a politician who was very well known in Pakistan, but outside of Pakistan would have been known by some people, but wouldn't certainly have been known by everyone listening to us on the BBC World Service. And so as well as bringing us up to date on the, the terrible events of that day, he also needed to explain to 
everyone listening why this was a particularly serious development in Pakistan. And Owen was presenting the program coming up after me on the World Service. And because he knew Pakistan so well, we asked him to come and speak to us. And he spent, and obviously I don't remember the exact durations, but he spent maybe a minute updating us on what we knew about the assassination, and then maybe spent four or five minutes placing it in context. And for me, and you could just feel everyone in the studio, everyone in the gallery, hanging on his every word, because he was making us understand the urgency and the importance of this story to Pakistan as a country and also to, to the region as well. And for me, it taught me a, a really vital lesson, which is that if you want people to engage with the subject that you're talking about, context is non-negotiable. If you mm -hmm. take much less serious examples than that one, if you are updating people on say, you know, your sales results in your company, it's relevant for them to know that this is five times higher than when you took over five years ago, right? That's relevant, or it's relevant that it's actually a massive dip on where you were last year. You can't judge the sales figures unless you know the context. That's a simple idea, but really almost everything we, we communicate needs to be placed in context. And sometimes, it can be tempting to lean towards the immediate information because that's the most recent and the, maybe the most urgent. And I always try and make sure I carve out space in what I'm doing to take that urgent and recent information and place it in context, not just because I think that gives a, a, a more rounded picture, although it does, but also because I think bluntly, it's more likely people will care about what I'm saying if I have explained the context well. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, and I think your point about in a business context as well, presenting, you know, I used to be uh, in the corporate world and some people would come and give me some data and I would say, yeah, and what's the, what is the so what of that? What, why yeah. does it matter? And I think this is, and this is where you're really thinking about your audience. And I think that's something that you're really strong on as well is like, what sort of questions will they have? What, you know, what is their level of knowledge? so that they can, you know, and helping them to fit this so that it makes it relevant for them. And I think that's a, that's a really, really strong point. And you're making a, an important point there, Sarah, which is that it can be seductive, and I'm, you know, as guilty of this as anyone, to see communication through our prism, yeah. to see it through our, uh, we're the person who's communicating some things, and we're looking at this whole experience through our perspective. I find it very useful to try and flip that and have an audience centric mm. perspective on what I'm doing. Like why is what I'm doing helpful or useful or not helpful or not useful to mm. whoever I'm communicating with? How do they like receiving information? How do they not like receiving information? What would they like to know from me? And, and that question, what would people like to know from me? I mean, that is a really powerful question if you apply it to every time you communicate, because if you can provide people with what they would like to get from you, I mean, they're gonna, they're gonna be glad of that, right? If they yeah. want some information and you give it to them, then, then that's gonna put you in a strong situation. So I wouldn't say it's just about the audience, but I would say this is a two-way two street and factoring in both the audience and your requirements for me is essential. Absolutely, brilliant, cool, okay. Now, one of the things that I can be quite pernickety about like you, are the visuals that accompany talks. And I wonder if you can share some of the mistakes that you've seen around this from your experience, and then some tips that you, you know, you've developed over the years for getting it right. 
Well, I think that my answer to those two questions kind of intersect, really, because the problem I've I, I've spotted many times over is also leads me to what I try and do. So the problem, the problem generally with how we all communicate, aside from presentations or visual support, is we tend to fill our communications with distractions, information that's not actually relevant to what we're trying to get across. And another form of distraction can be visual distractions. We are asking people to look at things that are not directly relevant to what we're saying. And lots of bad things follow from that. If you put up a slide in a presentation that's full of interesting things, I'm gonna start looking at them. And at the, in that moment, I'm gonna stop listening to you. So it's not even that the information on the slide is in and of itself bad, but if it's not directly connected to what you're saying, I'm gonna start thinking, huh, that's coming next, that's interesting, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll disengage. I also think that, as well as it being distracting, it can sometimes give away a lack of confidence. If you are saying something, uh, let's imagine you're talking about France and you feel the need to bring up a picture of the Eiffel Tower. Part of me is like, why is the picture of the Eiffel Tower there? We know where France is. We know, it, it, you know, sometimes visuals can feel like we are padding what we're saying. And I also think that sends uh, a message that, you know, you're not quite as confident of your material as you'd like to be. So the very simple, rule that we all followed when we had our program outside source which had a big touch screen so we were putting this into play every night and which i would apply to any presentation i give is if you have something visual that will support what you're saying have it there for people to see when you're talking about that issue or that piece of information specifically and get rid of it when you're not so it, it's it's not overly complicated but if you are re really strict about that and say I'm only going to show you something which is actively supporting what I'm saying. Obviously, the other benefit of that is there's nothing behind you which is distracting from what you're saying. And if I've got nothing to show that does support what I'm saying, trust that what you're saying is interesting enough as it is. We don't need to just have constant stuff behind us for the sake of it. So um, those two things, don't show things for the sake of it just because you feel like you ought to. And if you are showing things, show things that directly connect to what you're saying at that point. When you move on, move the, whatever's behind you on to whatever you're next, next talking about. Um, and as a consequence, I have lots of very simple slides when I'm speaking rather than uh, a low number of slides full of full of information. Yeah, and I think this is a really good point, especially like in my experience, uh, people in the corporate world think there's some sort of limit of the amount of slides that they they must have, you know, and I love there's the thing in the book where you turned up with like 60 slides and they said, oh, you're only talking for this long. And I was like, yeah, but like, you know, it's, it makes it pacey and engaging and all of that stuff. So there is absolutely, you can show as many slides as you want, as long as they're relevant and not distracting to, to yeah. the audience. Yes. And I also think let the content do the work. Like yeah. there's no need for for slides in a presentation, or if I was on the TV, our touchscreen with graphics, to be doing snazzy things for the sake of it. We don't need, uh, you know, if I write an email in 20.20 font and in red and bold, it's not going to make it more likely that you get something from that email. If I'm doing a presentation, if everything goes whoosh every time I bring something on, I don't think that's necessarily going to make it or break it. The thing that will make or break it is the quality of what you're showing and how well it supports what you're what you're talking about. Um, and so my other tip on that would be to, to practice it. So, for example, um, 
if I'm showing some data in a presentation which demonstrates progress around whatever it is the subject time. So imagine I'm going to say uh, five years ago it was 20%, four years ago it was 25%, three years ago it was 30%. I would want those numbers to appear as I say them. Absolutely. So there's a rhythm to it. So there's a sense of drama to it. Um, you may be able to do that first time, but when I'm doing a presentation which requires some quite precise animation to make sure that what's on screen is really supporting me, I practice it. I stand at home in my living room with a clicker and get it up on my on the PC and I talk through it so that I can talk into the visual support, not after it. So this is another thing that I'm preoccupied about. You know, when you're watching presentations and someone's talking and then they pause, they then click something, something comes on, they then look at the the whatever's just come on and then they go again. It kind of affects the rhythm of the the delivery. I always think it's more convincing when people talk into the animation. So they go and look at this for the sales last year, boom, and it yeah. arrives at, at that exact moment. And in my experience to do that well, you need to rehearse the animations as you speak to them. And almost always they won't be quite right or your words won't be quite right. So change either the, the the slides or change what you're saying until it feels really comfortable and then walk it through a number of times so that by the time you're doing it for real, you're not going, oh, I wonder what's next. You know exactly what's next and how it's going to sync with your um, delivery. And the, the good news on this, and I'm sure you found this, is that we all progress pretty quickly when we practice. Like it's not like you have you don't have to put aside two hours for this, even if you spent 10 minutes practicing talking into the animations that you have so that you know when to click and you know what to say. I find the rewards are quite quick. Absolutely. And just a real quick final point on this. And I mean, I, I don't think we've mentioned it, but it, it we've implied it just for, for clarity. Don't put up stuff on your slides before you say it because the no. audience will just read it and you become completely superfluous. No, no. I mean, I, a, so, uh, yeah, yeah ab absolutely not because the, let's be let's be positive about this. Maybe these slides are full of really important, interesting stuff. So if I'm in the audience, I'm just going to start reading it yeah, or looking. Exactly. I mean, why wouldn't why wouldn't I? The stuff is interesting and relevant. So um, have, you know, it's a simple rule. Just have behind you what you're talking about in that moment and not much else. Brilliant. That's cool. OK, so you are renowned for your clarity and conciseness. We might have already given some tips on this, but is there anything else, maybe one or two tips you can give on this for people to help them with that? Well, thank you very much indeed. I don't. I always feel like whenever anyone says that, I'm flattered, but I'm also immediately thinking, am I living up to this billing every time I open my <laughs> mouth? But I'll let people listening to this podcast decide that. Um, so there are a few things. Um, first of all, short sentences. Short sentences are very, very effective to make your work more consumable and clearer. Really think about how much detail and how many words you need to surround the information that you're passing on. Uh, we fill our sentences with, and our, when we're speaking as well, with lots of words and lots of information that's not really working towards our ultimate purpose. So in the book, I talk about this seven step process I go through and step one is what I call the setup. And that's really an assessment of what on earth am I doing at this moment? And part of the question, part of the, the setup is, what specifically am I trying to achieve with this piece of communication? 
because once you've established the purpose, the purpose can guide all the other decisions that you make. And so if you are trying to work out what information to include and what not to include, once you know your purpose, because bear in mind, we're not saying is this information inherently good or inherently interesting. That's not the criteria. The criteria is, is it helping communicate what I'm trying to communicate in this moment? So once you've got a clear purpose, you can start sifting out. Oh, actually, I don't think I need that. Oh, actually, this turn of phrase could be two words rather than five if I change the word. So the more you can sift out all of that additional, uh, those additional words and additional information, that will help. Short sentences um, will help as well. I think the other thing is to have a very clear sense of where you're taking the person that you're or people that you're addressing. Like, what is the route that you're planning to take through this process? So. Um, I think step four off the top of my head is organize the, the information. And that's a really important thing that I do before I start writing sentences, before I start thinking about the, the language I'll use around the information. I need to stop and think, what's the route through this? And I might not see it straight away, so I'll experiment. Well, if I started here and then went here and here and here, that's logical. No, it's not actually. Let me try. And so stopping to think about um, the the structure, the the story that you want to tell, that's a very good way of making sure that you can be you know concise and clear. And then, what would be my final thing? Read it out. Yeah. So even if it's written, I read everything out. I mean, I, this book I've read out. I don't know how many times, not just for the audio book I hasten to add, but well before that. Um, every video I record, I would have read out loud multiple times before I record it. And the reason is that I find by reading it out, I spot what I call the bumps or the creases in what I'm trying to do, the moments where the link between one thought and another doesn't quite work, or perhaps there's nothing factually wrong with what I've got, but it just doesn't roll off the tongue in a way that feels consumable and easy to deliver. And I can, even though I'm quite experienced at this now, I always spot things when I say it out loud that I haven't spotted when I've been looking at it on paper. So um, saying what you plan to say or write out loud is a really effective way of, of, of making sure you're being as clear and concise as you can be. Those are four thoughts. Um, there are quite a few more in the book. Oh, yeah, they definitely they're... are. <laughs> <laughs> no, they definitely are. And one of the things that you just mentioned was around the the links between the material and getting those segues right is is an important thing that you you work on um that's again from my comedy background that's something that's really important how do you segue between different bits of the material i had read something in your book which i think is is specific to journalism which was quite interesting to me because i hadn't come across it before um which this concept of back annos I don't know if I've said that right, but yeah. I wondered if you could share a bit more about them and why they're going to be valuable for speakers. Yeah, so back anos in their classic form in broadcasts are where you have some additional information to add at the end of a news story or a program. So let's imagine you're watching an entertainment program on the TV and at the end of it, whoever's doing the continuity comes across and says, and you can see exclusive additional content from this program on BBC iPlayer now. So that would be a back anno. Or if I was on the news and we had just spoken to someone about American politics, I might come off that and I would say, 
um, whoever it is, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. And I'll add, we're expecting the president to speak within the next two hours. When he does, we'll hear from him. So that would be a classic back anno. Mm. But, and I'd been using those for years, but in more recent times, I've started to experiment with back anos as a way of reinforcing what I've said. So it's a, it's a different technique. It's a technique that I've seen comedians use, and I've also seen other public speakers use, where you essentially reiterate something that you've already said. So if we imagine a comedian, and I'm not a comedian, so this is not going to be funny, but let's imagine you're telling a story which involves you uh, being stuck on the side of the road in a broken down car, eating a bowl of Frosties. I'm just making this up, right? That's an absurd position to be in at the end of this long and winding story that you've told in your comedy routine. And so you might get to the end of it and you might go, yes, that's right. Sitting in a, a car by the side of the motorway, eating breakfast, and yes, it was Frosties. Now, that's not particularly funny because I'm making it up, but you would reinforce the, the farcical moment of that, the, the farcical nature of that moment by simply reiterating it. And in a different way, not about farcical moments, but about information that really matters, back anos can be really effective too in serious scenarios. So I might say, if it was being positive, uh, let's carry on the example we've been giving about sales in businesses. You might say, so the sales were uh, 1 million in 2020, 2 million in 2022, but they were 7 million in 2023. And then you might pause and go, 7 million last year. You might just simply reiterate what you'd said to make sure you'd got across that that seven is a long way up on what had gone before. and. I've ex experimented with that. And if you watch my videos, you'll see me. I don't do it all the time because I think it's a technique that you need to save when you really, when something really does warrant. Mm. Um, I'll give you an example. We did a, a video about South Africa's electricity crisis the other day, and we had a clip of someone who uh, knew the issue very well, highlighting how much money was being lost to corruption. And after we heard the clip of this person saying that, my next line of script repeated the number that he had said because it was a, a number that really warranted spending some time on. In a more classic new script, you would just move on to the next oh, part of it. And so that's what I mean by back anos. So there are two type of back anos. There's a more regular one where you are simply coming off the back of a piece of information and telling whoever you're speaking to uh, uh, some additional information that they might be able to find somewhere mm. else. But the the one which I've really found high impact is where you you re you emphasize something that has just gone before. And I almost always use it either on a word or a phrase or a fact. Those are the three. Um, what's another example? I might say, let's imagine I run a politician saying, I'm absolutely delighted about this development. So the clip of I might say, well, that politician's delighted about the development. But this politician isn't. So yeah, I've yeah. used I've I've used the word, I've I've re-emphasized that that politician sees it that way as a way of also then talking into a different politician with a different perspective, and it can be a very good. There's different ways of doing this, but it's a technique that I call looking back and looking forwards, and that yeah. you look back at what you've come off, and in the same breath you look forward to where you're going, and yeah. it can be quite effective at injecting momentum and interest in the 
what may be a moment of weakness, which is your words between these two pieces of information that are interesting, but you want to help the, the person you're talking to get from one to the other. So back anos, I also call these joining phrases and back anos can be a form of joining phrase. No, that's great. No, that's really good. I think that, and it's, it's almost like it's really sort of focusing in on what's it's back to that context thing as well a little bit focusing in on what's what do you want them to take from that i think that's yeah, great it's, it's taking it's just asking whoever you're speaking to to take a moment it's often not more than two or three seconds just to kind of okay have we all taken in what we've just yeah. heard okay yeah. now we move on so it's just yeah. taking a moment to consider what you've heard yeah um and People do that in lots of, uh, in, in, you watch entertainment TV, people do that all the time. Certainly comedians do it very mm. regularly. Uh, you see politicians sometimes do it and some journalists do it and lots of other public speakers do it as well. Everyone will find a different way of using it. So I, you know, I would, I would say you have to kind of work out what fits for whatever it is that you do. But there's a lot of information coming at people generally and also within what you're saying however concise and clear you're being, you're still asking them to take in a decent amount of information. So picking a couple of things out and saying, let's focus on this is, is useful. Yeah. I would just add, can I throw in one last thought though? Go there's, for a, it. Go for it. Yeah. there's a brilliant academic called Professor Todd Rogers, who's a, an expert at short written communication and, and how we all consume emails and WhatsApps and so on. And he <laughs> introduced me to the idea of malevolent formatting i don't think that was quite his <laughs> phrase but i put it in those words but essentially that you can over format any like formatting can improve how you consume an email but if you do too much formatting it can actually undermine what you're trying to do and the same is true of back anos if you use a real a back anno 15 times in the talk you're giving it's good the effect is going to be entirely lost because there's a law of diminishing returns while as if you format an email with restraint but in a helpful way, it can make a big difference. Similarly, back anos, like a lot of the techniques in the book, you wouldn't want to, you know, you don't want to spray them all over what you're doing. You just want to have them as part of your range of techniques that you can use. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes less is more with those type of things. Yeah, That's when they have the impact. Brilliant. Okay. I would say to everyone listening, we've touched on a lot of things. The book is absolutely chock full of value. Make sure you go and uh, and get it. And I'll be asking you where people can go and get it in a, in a little bit, Roz. Um, we can't cover everything, obviously. But is there anything else that you feel you want to cover off any tip or mistake that you've seen um, before we go into some standard questions that I have for you? I think the message of the book as a whole is that how we communicate runs through the fabric of our lives and that most of us can think of big moments in our working lives, a speech, a job interview and so on, where the idea of preparing would make, make some sense. But actually there are lots and lots of other moments in our lives, smaller moments if you like, more day-to-day -day moments that can have a huge bearing on our working experience and what we do and don't achieve and what ideas do and don't happen and 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 so on and the book is really uh, me saying well here are a bunch of techniques for those big moments because there's definitely things we can do that will help those go well but actually let's also pay close attention to the small and medium moments because if we're more conscious about how we're communicating in a quick meeting or a 
quick panel discussion at a conference or a quick email, actually the cumulative effect of being disciplined about what am I trying to communicate? What would I, what information would I like in return with whoever I'm communicating with? What actions do I hope will come from this? If we're more conscious and precise about doing that routinely, there, there can be, you know, lots and lots of benefits that come from that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that you do. You don't just say this is for this. You do highlight that everything in the book can be applied to a whole range of scenarios that no matter what we do, we will experience. So definitely, I uh, think that's uh, worthwhile saying. Fantastic. OK, so I have some standard questions that I'd like to ask you before we wrap up, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. um, first one of which is this is obviously the Speaking Club podcast. What's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Well, it changed my speaking, changed my, changed my career, really, because I was a producer, which I love being at BBC News, but I wanted to see if I could be the one asking the questions and could be the one presenting the news programmes. And it was only through working hard at how I spoke in the studio and in the in the newsroom that that allowed me to to achieve that goal. So speaking has been transformative for me really and if I think about some of the ideas that I've been able to get off the ground whether it's outside source or our explainer videos and others they all connect directly to my ability to explain ideas and make the case for ideas and to uh to 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 navigate moments of pressure where you need to communicate effectively and so my working life would be completely different if if speaking weren't a, a central part of it and the more I've done it the more I've loved exploring the the mechanics of it the techniques that underpin it rather than doing it on instinct I think instinct can get us a, a certain way mm -hmm. but when I became much more conscious and deliberate about how I try to improve how I speak um, the rewards the rewards in terms of opportunities followed and so, yeah, it's a it's a passion of mine and it's central to how I work every day. Fantastic. Now, a lot of people will have done some speaking and then perhaps had a, a, a bit of an, a bad experience. Mm. Have you ever had a bad, either a bad broadcast or a bad speaking gig and you think, oh, my goodness, that I just want to put that out of my mind forever. Has that happened to you? Definitely. I've had lots of experiences which I've uh, come out of feeling not happy about. I can think of uh you know reporting where i've come off and thought i just didn't really get across what i wanted to i can think of a couple of moments earlier in my career where the nerves were very close to being overwhelming and it was horrible frankly um and there have been lots of times as well when i've reflected on how i presented a a big moment on the news and thought you know i really wish i'd done it this way or done it that way so i never assume that i'm going to be a able to do it well so that's a kind of ongoing ongoing process I would say the biggest single thing that's helped me uh, reduce the frequency of that is a practice I know it's really obvious but just in case anyone thinks practice is just when you're starting out a couple of a few weeks ago just before this book came out I took quite a few hours at home to think about what I'm likely to be asked about this book in this context and that context. I could be asked this question or that question. And I practiced on my own in our living room how I thought I would talk about it because writing a book and talking about a book are two different things. So um, I still practice 
and still review what I do all the time. And that's really helpful. And then the other thing is, is nerves can be, you know, really horrible when they strike. And I've always been quite prone to nerves. And so, and still get quite nervous in certain situations, but I have a bunch of techniques that, or things that I do to try and get them down. And I would definitely suggest, and we don't need to go into all the detail now, that if anyone listening finds nerves is getting in the way, first, be reassured that almost everyone gets nervous. Mm -hmm. uh, and second, be reassured that there are things that can, you can do that will almost always help. Absolutely. And so if you know what you're going to do when you get nervous, that can go a long way. And so I have three or four things that I do when I start feeling nervous. They don't make the nerves go away, but they get the nerves down into an area where it feels, you know, like I can navigate the moment. While as I can think of a couple of moments very early on in my broadcasting career where the situation was not comfortable at all being yeah. live on the being live on the radio and I don't have any don't have any desire to experience <laughs> that again frankly I think there's a really that's a really good point I think I think this is the thing is just understanding that nerves basically say that you care about what you're doing and also that you're getting ready to go into peak performance and often if we can reframe nerves and see them as a, as a positive that besides the routines that we can use to to help manage them that's a great way just to, to yeah. look at it and I won't, I won't go to all of it now but I, one thing I always say on nerves is that with maybe a couple of exceptions but hardly any when you are talking people are expecting you to be good mm. I don't turn up at a conference expecting a speaker not to be good I'm anticipating they're they're good if I go to a meeting with a colleague I've met before and they're going to brief us on an issue i'm expecting them to be good and everyone else in the room is expecting them to be good we want you to be good as well so with the exception of a few you know there must be some examples where the the crowd is a bit more hostile but almost always you're talking to people who are expecting you to do well and mm. they're not looking to trip you up they're not looking for you to go wrong and so be reassured that there you might be nervous at the beginning of it but they're not they're just expecting you to be good yeah, absolutely. They are with you. Uh, good. Okay. Last few questions. Um, okay. Next one. What's the book that's had most influence on your life and why? Oh, blimey. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know if I would pick out one, but there there is a book that called What is History by E.H. Carr, which I was given to read in the sick form, which is all about the fundamental questions of of what historians are trying to do and it was the first time that I'd stepped back from just being interested in studying the events of history and constructing arguments around those events and thought more about the fundamentals of what an enthusiastic young historian like I was at the time was doing and as well as it being interesting and as well as it improving how I went about history it actually just taught me a much broader lesson, which I still apply all the time, which is that stepping back and looking at what you're doing and considering the fundamentals of what you're doing is, is worth doing. And I've done that throughout my career as a journalist, where I've questioned, is this the form my journalism should take? Are there ways that I can adapt my journalism to the nature of our industry and the nature of the way that we all consume information? In a different way, this book is, is me saying, I'm stepping back from my day-to-day -day journalism and trying to examine in a broader sense how and why sometimes I effectively communicate and sometimes I don't. And so 
while the specifics of what is history, which I confess I've not read for a long time, I, I don't recall. I do recall the the fact that it just opened my eyes to the fact that there is an option to take one further step back from what you're doing and appraise what you're doing. And that I still do all the time in lots of different areas. Yeah, that's very, very evident in from the conversation and from the book that you do that. That's brilliant. OK, uh, what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? The advice, <laughs> I mentioned this a couple of times and it still remains a great a great piece of advice. I used to work out at BBC Television Centre in West London and you'd have to get the tube. I used to get the tube from the centre of town out to White City. And I remember being on the tube one day and there was a magazine on the floor. I don't recall what magazine at all. And I picked it up and there was an interview, one of these quick Q&As with Natasha Kapinski, who at the time was a big name yeah. uh, BBC News presenter. Mm. And in it, it said, what's the best advice you've been given? And she said that most of the big decisions taken in your workplace that affect your career are probably not about you. <laughs> and I always remember reading it. And I suppose maybe I was at a time when I was still trying to get my career going. And maybe I don't recall, but I but I remember thinking like, that's helpful because I am taking quite a few things that are happening at work that are not, you know, where things are not lining up for me quite as I'd hoped quite personally. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a caveat, which is sometimes the decisions that affect you are about you. And it's also <laughs> important to know that know that sometimes you haven't been chosen for something because actually they've decided you're not the right one. And that's that's OK. So you can't avoid that. But there are lots and lots of dynamics, particularly within big organizations, but not only within big organizations, which just are not specific to you, but which can have direct specific consequences for you. And um, there have been a few moments along the way with my career where I've had disappointing developments and I've thought of the magazine on the floor in the tube with the Natasha Kaplinsky Q&A and it's been helpful. That's brilliant. Yeah, Being able to make that distinction and then detach from because it, it can send you a whole down down a spiral of of pain if you if you start to um, attach things. That's really, really helpful. OK, last question. If you could have one mentor and they can be alive or dead fictional or non-fictional who would you choose and why i'm going to choose i'm going to choose someone who's not a mentor of mine but is someone who i'm able to to call up and it's my colleague alan little who i reference in the book more than i haven't counted it but i'm pretty sure i reference him more in the book than than anyone else and alan is a giant of bbc journalism has been for for decades but the reason I would pick him above other colleagues who are also of a incredible stature in our industry is that Alan opened my eyes to the possibilities of clarity and concision and simplicity with, with language. I think without reading Alan and without listening to Alan talking about some of these disciplines, I wouldn't have understood how central they are to the work we do as journalists, but also how central they are to how we all communicate. And so I don't know Alan well enough. I don't call him up every week, but we 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 talk from time to time. And I spoke to him when I was writing this book. And every time I do, I feel like, you know, I'm I'm lucky to have act to be able to 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 hear his wisdom on the on the trade that we've both chosen. And so I would choose Alan Little. 
lovely that's brilliant that's excellent good i bet you'll be chuffed if he hears this <laughs> so I, <laughs> I hope so i've been bothering him quite uh quite a lot i in fact I, as, as we're approaching the end i'll share there's a there's a bit right at the end of the book where i quote a conversation with alan and we're both kind of trading notes on why we are so preoccupied with this issue and he came up with this lovely phrase. He said, it's like it's like a dirty window. You can see through a dirty window, but when you clean it, you see so much better. And I feel like we could all and do all communicate with each other in our day-to-day -day lives. Of course, the world turns because we're communicating. But when you clean the window, when you pay more attention to how you're communicating, the possibilities open up. That's a lovely analogy. I love that. And a great way to wind things up. So... Let's just quickly reiterate the title of the book for people listening. And then if you could share where they can go and, and find out more about the book and you if they want to. It's called The Art of Explanation. It's available in hardback as an ebook and an audio book. It's available from all good bookshops, I believe is the phrase. Um, <laughs> if you want to see a range of those bookshops, if you go to the top of my Twitter profile, there's a there's a link to a page which has links out to a whole range of different bookshops but you can find it in all the places where you'd normally find hardbacks ebooks and audiobooks smashing and are you on so you're on linkedin aren't you Ros, i mainly you so i am on facebook and instagram but i tend to be more active on twitter and on linkedin but yeah. i'm not hard to find on any of them to be honest smashing brilliant well thank you so much for sharing not at all thanks for having me stuff you're welcome and i'll put the link to that page where you can go and find out about where you can get hold of the book in the show notes too. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Roz. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Sarah. That was lovely. Thank you. I'm sure you can tell that I absolutely loved this book and love talking to Roz about his experience as a journalist and presenter and the little tips and tricks from that world that we can transpose into the world of speaking to land our message more powerfully. And I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. What was your biggest takeaway? If you had a big aha, why not pop onto LinkedIn to share it and tag Roz and me, if you like, in the message. It would be really good to know what resonated most with you. And if you did get value from this episode and from what Roz was sharing, do go and grab a copy of his book, The Art of Explanation. There are two books called The Art of Explanation, but you need to pick the one, obviously, by Roz Atkins. And this today, we just like scratched the surface of the tip of the iceberg. There's lots more in that book, and I know you're going to get so much uh, from it. And it will also make a fantastic Christmas prezi. There you go. I just want to say thanks again for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club. And if you got value, do please take a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC or wherever you're listening, whatever application you're listening, whether that's Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcast, there is also an opportunity edit uh, apps. There's an opportunity to leave a rating and review right there where you're listening. So thanks again. I'll catch you next time. Um, but until then, you know what I'm going to say. Don't you forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye bye.
One of the things that I teach you on my masterclass has been a game changer for lots of people. The trouble is that we're often too close to our thing to present it in the way our audience needs to see it and hear it to get the results that we want. That's where this powerful live interactive masterclass comes in. I'm going to be taking you through my proven six-step heart map blueprint for creating powerful authentic talks and content using stories that connect with your audience and get them into action. Here's some feedback from previous attendees. Definitely a value-packed two hours for anyone wanting to engage with their audience. Well worth signing up for Sarah's Masterclass if you want to make your content connect with your audience. Recommend it massively. Best two hours I've spent all year. I know your time is precious. That's why I guarantee that if you don't leave this Masterclass knowing exactly what you need to include in your next talk to get more engagement and sales, then I require you to ask for your money back. Grab your space to work with me on your talk at the next masterclass over at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass.